Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Radio 4, episode number 1417, entitled Not All Who Wongers Are Lost. Our <laughs> podcast title is Harpod. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh, together again. Yes, yes. Team Rocket blasting <laughs> off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Prepare for trouble. <laughs> You were warned. You were warned. Yeah, yeah, you now have five seconds to reach minimum safe distance. Good to see you back again, Megan. Yes, good to be back. Good to be back together, chatting through some good different content. It's always nice to do the show together, despite our forays into the solo artist life. I've enjoyed your solo episodes too. And I'm fascinated by the detective orientated ones. I knew that would happen. (laughs) You know me too well. (laughs) All right. Now, today, as you can tell from the title, not all who wongers are lost. We're going to be looking at She-Hulk, which has run its emerald-hued, gamma-powered course. As she says, I'm Marvel's premier superheroine, and I deserve the best creative team available. After all, my origin was written by Stan Lee. We're talking the big time here. (laughs) She said in Sensational She-Hulk, Volume 1, Number 50. So, yeah, first impressions, Megan. I've gone back and forth on this one a lot. I think a lot of fun. I love a good break of the fourth wall. I think when used correctly, when deployed with efficiency and impact, I think it is a wonderful kind of technique. Mm -hmm. Overall, I enjoyed it. I do think that it covered up some of its narrative failings with some gimmicky winks at the camera, if you know what I mean. So I can forgive it that, but I think overall it was a bit haphazard when you look at the whole season, but it definitely had some great high notes. So I've been very conflicted. I've been really thinking about how did I feel? What about you, Rob? I had a little trouble with a half-hour sort of format. Yes. I felt like they were just getting started on some things and then they yanked the rug out. So it's actually a show that I would like to watch again, binge watch it one after another. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the 30-minute episodes really is more of a sitcom length, but the pace of the episodes weren't that of a sitcom. So whenever it was sort of, I totally agree with you, the episode would end and I'd be like a bit surprised by it. And I think the pacing of the whole season was off because of that restriction on the episode length, to be honest. Mm -hmm. That said, I loved it too. (laughs) I found the the sense of humour of the character and and the way that they played it all worked very well. It did remind me very much of actual She-Hulk comics, Mm, mm, Uh, mm. obviously for that panel-breaking She-Hulk smash fourth wall, all that sort of stuff. (laughs) I just enjoyed that a lot. The characters were delightful for the most part. Yeah. Uh, The social commentary I thought was spot on. Yeah. I think in a way it actually could have gone a bit further. I think some of the things it raised was super interesting. I love the kind of woman in the workplace and some of the things around being a (laughs) quote-unquote female lawyer. I loved that they were starting to tackle some of those things, the experience of women, but I think they didn't quite go as far as they could have. I would have liked to see a little bit more. And you can do that and still keep the comedy tone too, but Mm. I think they did a bit of a light hand, light touch on some of those issues. Yeah. That said, it's probably the out-and-out funniest 
show we've seen so far from Marvel, and apart from some of the animated ones. I think I do agree, but I think I probably lean towards more describing it as more silly. I think yeah. the tone of it was funny. I think it was more silly. I think just the way they approached it was definitely very meant to be lighthearted, and that's especially obvious in the last couple of episodes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. On the whole, I think they nailed the wacky legal comedy. I'm thinking Boston Legal and that yeah. sort of thing. What's, what's the other one? The one that had RDJ in it. Uh, Ali. Oh, Ali McBeal. Yeah, yes. I feel like they got into that league quite well. And, of course, because they've got the superhero aspect of it, they could go really far beyond that. Yeah, I like the superhero element. I would actually say I thought the legal comedy element, the procedural of that, was a bit lacking for me. I, like I think that. it was a little legal light, to be honest, and I think I would have loved to see a little more courtroom drama. I do think they had A plots and B plots and they had like kind of sometimes the case of the episode. But, and I think again, it's the the season didn't have as much room to do everything it could have done. We could have fallen into like a case of the week if we'd had more time. Some of the characters could have had more room to breathe because I liked them, but more room if it was an hour. And those legal ones you mentioned, like Alan McBeal, they're an hour, like a 45 minute. I do agree with you. It was on the right path. And I think, I liked that setting, but I wanted a little more legal and a little more drama. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, well, let's have a track here, and this is from the She-Hulk soundtrack. There are two albums out on that now. Amy Doherty does the music for this. It's the difficult diva of law herself, (laughs) which I'm sure is playing off all sorts of Madonna and Lady Gaga kind of things. Apart from Amy Doherty's soundtrack, which is great in itself, the music that's included within the show, you know, this is a very standard Marvel thing now. I found it just as penetrating in its own way as a cultural sort of phenomena, as a summation of the times and life of the character. as ones we've seen in some of the Netflix shows, like, mm. you know, like uh, Luke Cage mm-hmm. and, and Jessica Jones, those sorts of ones. I, I think they nailed it here too. You have to listen to it and you have to be aware of where they're going. It, it is a strongly feminist soundtrack, I found. A lot of those mm-hmm. songs with very empowered women, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. the heck out of them. Hi there, I'm Don Mates, science fiction and fantasy artist and illustrator. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM, and it's a great show. But hey, what do I know? I'm only here to paint the walls and the ceiling. Hey, Rob, was that nightmare blue or goblin green? Well, it would have to be green goblin, wouldn't it? Of course. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, rather smashing track there from the She-Hulk Oh, I'd have so much trouble with that. I'd have even more trouble if I was Sean Connery. (laughs) She-Hulk. The difficult diva of law herself, Amy Doherty there. Mm, She's got some chops too. So she's an Irish composer and she's done quite a bit of scoring for both film and television. So some of her uh, TV work, some scores she's worked on include Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, the Fargo series, uh, Umbrella Academy and Altered Carbon. She also does a little bit of scoring for like pop musicians and things like that. And she's done movies as well. Spirit Untamed, Undone, Love You to Death, Battle at Big Rock and the rom-com Happiest Season. So she's done a lot of uh, small screen stuff that we've seen and enjoyed. And I'll be keen to hear her scoring some other stuff soon, hopefully. Hmm. So we're having a bit of a wander here on Zero G. Not a, not a wander vision, but 
or a fish called Wanda, but having a little wander through the She-Hulk Attorney at Law series we've been watching on Disney Plus. We've rolled through all nine episodes, I think, of it is. Yeah. And look, I've enjoyed it. It has some pacing flaws, I think. But at Mm. the same time, I'm probably not seeing it as a bad show at all from the point of view of people who've been criticising overly critical, I think, of the CGI. And, you know, we don't even need to go through the anti-woke brigade. They Mm. dust it off our shoulders. Just ignore them. Stay asleep, people, if you must. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I applaud the people who work in special effects for shows. I think it's a very hard job and there's always someone who's got some complaint about the way the light hits something or other or whatever. So I think a lot of that people should think before they criticize. I will say I do think there's some times the movement of She-Hulk was a little uncanny to me and it didn't take me out of it by any means. And I'm fully aware that I'm like, I think I probably prefer that than some other body painted green uh in this in the shot i'm not sure but there was a couple of moments where the movement seemed odd but Mm. again it was you know i thought about it and then i dismissed it do you know what i mean like you just get over it you go oh that was a bit of an odd thing and then you just move on and keep living your life so (laughs) i can see that it's a very difficult technical feat as well and i can see that this is kind of a challenge of getting a show like this is how do you tackle her in her She-Hulk form where it can still be the actress like Tatiana doing the acting, but she's in this totally different physical form. Like I can see that that was a challenge and I think all things considered they've pulled it off. So, Yeah, it's funny how far they've gone really when you think about it, how far they've come since the first sort of digital characters Mm. on the movie screen where, you know, they cost an absolute packet to Mm -hmm. up in that sort of detail on the big screen. And I was actually watching another Marvel show, an older one, you know, from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. era. It's called The Inhumans. Mm -hmm. And they had a CGI dog in that, a giant dog called Lockjaw. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that they'd spent a lot on that. They also had to try and animate Medusa's hair, the uh, Inhuman character Medusa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. one of the um, Atlan uh, royal family members, and she has, like, a big mane of red prehensile living hair. Ha! Medusa! That would make it an eponymous tail. And so it, they do animate it really well, mm. uh, but they chop it off to get rid of it. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you can see it. Let's save a bit of money here. I love that. And here we have Jen being She-Hulk every single episode. Yep. Maybe not as many times as they'd planned because, you know, budget. The thing is you think, oh, yes, it would be – it's way cheaper to do it CGI. It's not. It costs no. a fortune to do this sort of stuff. Yeah. But the, it's a difference between doing it and not doing it at all. And I did find out that an actress called Malia Araya serves as the on-set reference and body double. <sighs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I've seen her in pictures done in the uh, body paint and in cast photos too, so they include her in that. And, you know, you could say, well, let's do this like Lou from the original Incredible Hulk. And I pause there to jump right out of the, the panel and the frame to give them such props for giving us a She-Hulk uh, intro in one of the episodes that just ripped off the Incredible Hulk, the old mm. Bill Bixby and uh, Lou Fregnio um, series intro so well you know (laughs) it was around before a lot of listeners were even born that show yeah (laughs) (laughs) it made my heart pound Uh oh (laughs) so yeah look speaking of she-hulk tatiana maslany she is just she nails it basically yeah she's great very fun to watch and when they do mocap for her to with her face on the She-Hulk, it's great. I actually mm. stopped looking at, at She-Hulk being this massive 
two-metre-tall, athletic Amazonian creation, and I focused on her face a lot. Yes, same. Yeah. It was yep. so complex, the, the rendering of all of that. And I know it's yep. mocap, so you can do that. But, wow, so impressed by that. I think she managed to effortlessly cross between the two characters and mm. maintain elements of Jen in She-Hulk's character at the same time. And largely through those facial expressions, I think, like you were saying, like she's really used her face to link those two characters who look so different. And that's part of it, right? They're playing on the contrast of she's so small and tiny and then She-Hulk's form, you know, just playing that off, Mm. but linking it with She-Hulk's face really seeming like Tatiana's expressions and, and all of that. So, and I'd say that's probably slightly more evident than the, Mark Ruffalo to Hulk. I would say I see much less of Mark Ruffalo in Hulk's facial expressions. They've improved him a lot. I think mm. more recently it's much more. The Hulk looks like Mark Ruffalo, but they've made an effort, I think, here to make She-Hulk very humanised. And I think we got about the right amount of cameos too, like um, Mark Ruffalo as Hulk. And, and yes, there are spoilers here, kiddies. For the yes, I mean, it's finished. Series. You've yeah. had time, I think. We're allowed to, to drop a spoiler or two. Uh, you know, Matt Murdock as Daredevil, much yeah. anticipated. Yes. Um, balancing his experienced crime fighter and lawyer roles mm. and, and passing love interest for Jen too. That was my the peak for me. Like I thought seeing him in this show, like when the tone is such a contrast to Daredevil, it was really great to see him get to play against her and, you know, a little bit of that chemistry and comedy and, you know, jokey. I thought that by far was like the high point for me, like their interactions, his cameo, his role. I loved it. That episode was by far my favourite thing about the series. When they struck down into Daredevil and Jen infiltrating a villain's lair and it starts off with Daredevil, Charlie Cox, doing his – Really brutal fighting style, you know, mm. goes in and goes through the, the minions. Oh, hang on, they actually had a definition of that, didn't they? Different between henchmen and goons, that's right. Yeah, goons, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Matt and Jen are on the rooftop and it's kind of flirty and Matt says that um, the difference between goons and henchmen is that the henchmen are there for the cause and goons are just there for the paycheck. <laughs> so then they went and they, this being she was like flipped it. Yeah. So we got the inevitable corridor fight that mm. Daredevil was going to get involved in, just smashed by Jen. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what they've done well is incorporate him and, you know, make nods to his normal fighting style, what Daredevil is. I'm just so pleased they found a place for him in the MCU again. Charlie Cox, I think, is so charismatic and great as Daredevil slash Matt Murdock. And I just want to see more. Like, I squealed when he was in Spider-Man. Very excited to see him here. More Daredevil, please. Yeah, he's still a very good lawyer. He is. (laughs) Hello, my name's Sylvester McCoy. I play Doctor Who number seven. And you're listening to me, and you're also listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Ginger Gonzaga as Jen's best friend. You couldn't ask for more. She's a standout here, for mm. sure. That's what I would have se- liked to see more of her. She plays a great sidekick to She-Hulk, and I think that is, you know, that's the role, the best friend, the sidekick, and she she makes it her own, and she's, so, she's a bit of a scene stealer, and I love that. Mm. 
Tim Roth reprising his role as Emil Blonsky and the Abomination, now reformed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and running a, a retreat out in the country, a wellness retreat called Summer Twilights. <laughs> and you know that's all going to go wrong, but because they were very meta and they did break the fourth wall, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I do think the vibes are good. The vibes are so solid, but honestly, I don't know where this season was going. I don't know what the point was. I couldn't tell you who the villain was. I do think it copped out a bit, and I don't think the narrative was very well done, <laughs> unfortunately. Blonsky was great. I, I love the fact that he's now writing haikus. <laughs> Tim Roth really nailed that character, and I think a lot of the comedy sprang from that, Mm. but I couldn't tell you what his role was in this season by the end. (laughs) I think he actually was serving as a a genuine counsellor to Jen. That's the way it played out to me. And, of course, he did get to do the betrayal thing and all that kind of stuff, but it didn't matter really. And we got all these other little But, Rob, none of it made sense. (laughs) Because it makes no sense, it is real She-Hulk. I guess so, but I I, I don't know. I think it didn't pull it off enough for me to forgive the nonsense. (laughs) To the other characters that we saw, Man Bull and El Aguila and mm-hmm. Saracen and Porcupine, these are all minor characters. Some of them might have been made up for this, but they're all minor characters from the Marvel comic universe, and it's just fun to kind of see them, especially Porcupine. And to see them all gather around Jen and sort of help her out when she doesn't know should react when she doesn't get a text from a new boyfriend. They had a lot of fun with that episode particularly, yeah. And, of course, we couldn't go without adding in some extra stuff to continue on the MCU story. So we got to see Scar, uh, Hulk's son from Sakaar. That was a surprise to me. I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And, of course, we had Jamila Jamal playing Titania. Again... Uh, and I don't want to be – I feel like the more I engage with it and think about it, the more critical I'm being. But I, what was her role in this? Was she an antagonist? Well, she what was, was her motivation? I believe that she was there to play the anti-She-Hulk, another mm. female superhero or villain who'd gone wrong and had taken hold of the whole social media aspect of it, the mm. merchandise This is often the case in superhero stories. You'll see somebody who has similar powers to the hero or the heroine and they have gone wrong. So they're there. They've chosen the dark path. Yeah. Yeah. Or the bright, shiny and spangly path. Yeah. And she often got the show stolen away from her at times. And that's not easy to do with with Jamil. She's just such a presence. Yeah. Mm. I also liked uh, Griffin Matthews playing uh, Luke Jacobson, the fashion designer who does the superhero suit. Yes. Yep. That was a nice inclusion, actually. And we're all, of course, thinking he's channeling like Edna from um, The Incredibles, you know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. (laughs) He had a lot of fun being mean. I liked it. His scenes were great. Yeah. And it would even actually function as part of the plot because that's where we first saw Daredevil's new helmet. Sitting yeah, in his yeah. Office, you know. Yeah, little the, tidbit there. The silly ones like Leapfrog, you know, that was crazy. And and mm. the, the Immortal Man. <laughs> yep. I also will say I enjoyed 
Madison with the Y, but it's not where you think. Oh, yeah. Madison with two N's and a Y, but not where you think. <laughs> and Patty Guggenheim played Maddie. She, she clearly was having fun. Most voted to be a spin-off movie or television series of her own. It and, was pretty good. And she, of course, now she's the BFF of Sorcerer Supreme Wong. That was that was nice. <laughs> so, can you see that? I can totally see that. I'd watch it. But, you know, we never actually found out why <laughs> Wongers sprung the abomination from the maximum security no. prison. Very, I yeah. See, again, some threads hanging, but maybe that'll be something yeah. for... Are they doing another season of this? This isn't a one-shot like WandaVision. I think this is... It's possible. Possible. The Kevin AI mm. robot said, no film, no movie. No. No, no. It was cute. You know, uh, Marvel's decisions are made by a droid. <laughs> it's definitely playing off the fact that the people watching this are embedded in the MCU. Yeah. And they, you know, they have these questions. They know who Kevin really is. It's very self-aware. Yeah, it has to be because it's written on the tin for She-Hulk. All right, being self-aware, time is passing. Let's have a track here. And this is not from the soundtrack album or even any song that's included in it, but it's by Aaron Fraser Nash, and it's a single called She-Hulk Sings a Song. This is Sir Derek Jacobi. Zero G or not zero G, that is the question. She-Hulk sings a song from the eponymous single uh, mm-hmm. by Aaron Fraser Nash, who's a British artist hanging around a lot on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram. I think they've done about 800 or so videos. Does a lot of parody <laughs> songs, you know, uh, Godzilla versus King Kong and Chucky versus Benny. Well, I don't know who Benny is. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, but obviously no match for Chucky, I would say. But in that case, doing a She-Hulk parody there. Hmm. We're still talking about She-Hulk on Disney Plus. I don't know if we mentioned that. Where else would it be? It's Marvel, you know, gone through all of the characters. There's some little bits and pieces I would like to touch upon before (laughs) we go out. You know, look, I would not say it's probably the best of the Marvel series, but I think it's one of the most fun that I've mm. had so far. And and I think you're right, Megan, the silliest one. And I think there's room yeah. in there. I mean, while you were on shore leave and, and conducting your landing party, mm-hmm. we reviewed uh, Werewolf by Night, the Halloween special, which was a howling success. <laughs> a lot of fun in that one too. And it's great to see them doing more playful stuff. Yeah. And I feel like they've actually managed to expand well out of the straight superhero niche that they were in in Marvel. Mm. And just get into all sorts of odd little cross-genre things, which is good because that's what the damn comics books do too. I think it's interesting too. We're now in the territory where in the, a world where superheroes are known and the world is like accepting of all of these kinds of different occurrences. Like we're no longer really operating in a world where it's lesser known and like we're firmly now in the world where it's like this is an accepted norm that there are superpowered people and these are the stories we're going to tell. And I do think that's kind of a shift that's been happening obviously over all the movies like and then the Avengers do a bunch of stuff and everybody knows about it. But like it's interesting how you go from the on the street, no one really knows about you to now we're really operating in the like it's par for the course to have cases that revolve around 
mystical things or demons or people from another dimension. And I really leaning into that more as a a kind of a monster slash case of the week thing. And I could have liked to see that happen a little more, but I think that's interesting now. We're definitely firmly in that territory. Actually, speaking of demons, as as fun as Madison with two ends and a Y, but not where you think, is when she was involved in her mystical episode in mm. She-Hulk, it looked like they were teasing Mephisto, mm. a very major supernatural character in Marvel. So in mm. a way they were like furthering that kind of yeah. adventure. And there's a lot in there. In the background of the show, so many Easter eggs, like on a newspaper headline, and it said, man with metal claws in bar fight. Ooh, and we all know, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And yeah. We've already been privy to the magnificent news that Ryan has managed to co-op his punching bag and roommate, <laughs> huge Axeman, back into the Marvel Universe in the next Deadpool film. That was a reveal and a half. That was some well-played PR. And there was another headline too that said, why is there a giant statue of a man in the sea? And that's Eternals, finally <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> you, Referenced. <laughs> you, you'd think that someone mm, mm, <laughs> said mm, something mm. But there's a giant metal man in the sea. It's Tuesday. Hi, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so that's all right. So there's lots of that kind of stuff in there. As I said, I was watching the ABC and Humans, and there's scarcely a reference in that. Mm. That's an older defunct series now. There's scarcely a reference in that to the MCU. It's a spin-off of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They're so careful not to take the Ferrari out of the yeah. garage and scratch it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. here, it's all over the yeah. place. You know? It's free-for-all. Yep. yep. Yeah. There's so many tiny jokes in there, like when she made fun of Daredevil's costume colour scheme. Yeah. And she was making fun of yellow, basically. And he said, I'll tell Luke. So she said, no, no, don't. This is, to me, now it's running exactly like comic strip in a newspaper. Mm. You know, a beloved comic strip where all of the in-jokes and references are known, except Marvel is one vast comic strip. So it must be difficult if you haven't read a lot of the comics and, and don't know who the characters are. But that's part of the fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think overall for me, enjoyable, love the tone. I do think the narrative stuff for me is just where it fell down. I think the writing for the season and the the arc of the season, it's okay if you have very strong per episode arcs, but it didn't have that either. And so I just would have loved to see a bit more attention paid to getting from A to B in that first season. And I think they just copped out a bit at the end, like I said before. So overall, I love a good meta situation. I wanted a little more than just cop out with a wink to the camera. Mm-hmm. I intellectually agree with that. Mm. But you still had a ripping good time. I did. I had a smashing time. Because Jen has been one of my favourite comic book characters. Yes. And, and to see them do right by her, yeah, know, yes. as they did with Captain Marvel, and I am one of the uh, of the Captain Marvel yeah. adaptation. Carol Core, higher, further, faster. This is the way to go. And I really hope that she gets another outing. And yeah. If they did do a movie, could you not see a a rom-com in her future? Yeah, absolutely. Like something much lighter, really funny. Like there's a lot of possibilities now they've introduced this kind of show, so we'll see. And I look forward to the day when they do an A-Force movie perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, so we'll have Jen and and Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel and and the whole lot. You know, they've gone from who is our one female superhero in the um, Black Widow and and, and, uh, uh, who else? And and now we get an entire A-Force of them in the Endgame movie. 
Yes. Yeah. And it's doubled by now. So, you know, casualties notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I want to see them use these characters to their full potential. One of the things I did like, and it, and it is a criticism at the same time because it's part of the flaws that we saw, I also think it's a strength, the fact that they could just do an episode, mm. like the wedding episode, mm. you know, and these are just breaking the tropes, essentially. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And speaking of breaking, there's a song mm-hmm. called Walking on Broken Glass in that season one episode, episode number six, mm-hmm. uh, called Just Jen where she looks at the camera and winks and says, oh, look, breakout wedding episode, you know. <laughs> and the song is Walking on Broken Glass by Annie Lennox, and I'm always keen to play any Annie Lennox that I can on Zero G. So let's go to that one. Another one of the, I thought, very well-selected tracks that pops up within the She-Hulk series. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Always willing to listen to Annie Lennox on Zero G, Walking on Broken Glass. Mm. So we thought we might take another look at Rings of Power. So that is going to be for the rest of the show. So Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. We did cover a little bit of this when it first came out. We looked at the first couple of episodes. The showrunners are J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, and it's set in the second age of Middle-earth. So that's like a couple of thousand years before The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and it's, we're really focusing on the rise of Dark Lord Sauron and the forging of the Rings of Power. And so we see a lot of the elves see a lot of Galadriel, a lot of Sauron, some weird stuff that I don't know about because I stopped watching the series. But, Rob, you continued. (laughs) How many episodes did you get in? I only watched the first couple because I was interested. I thought it looked beautiful, and I know they've pumped a lot of money into this. I think it's like a pet project for Bezos. So he's like, take all the money you need. I won't pay my workers, but here you go. Have all this money for the show. So they've had loads of money. Also, the rights cost a lot of money. So it does look beautiful. But I just, I don't know, even though it was nice to spend some time in that world and I think the energy of the show was really good, there's just so much competing stuff on right now and I just fell off. So should I pick it back up or what are your thoughts? Well, it gets considerably more exciting. Okay, good, good sign. As it goes along and absolutely bust epic moves later on. So I think it does deserve that because the story is actually set at that scale, unlike the Peter Jackson's rather bloated essay on The Hobbit. (laughs) This one really deserves to go where they needed to go. Look, there are some issues with this, I thought, you know, the – and there's some of them are silly issues, like the armor that everybody wears. There's some strange things going on with them, you know, s- scale armor layered over plate armor, mm. thereby destroying the whole purpose of scale armor. But, you know, I can make workarounds in my head. Oh, it's like that because this civilization is a, a seagoing civilization and they're like fish, so there are scales on their plate. You know, stuff like that I can just sort of conjure up in my head because... Hand wave away, sure. Yeah, yeah. wizard, magic, you know, so there's that kind of thing. The style of the show gets to me occasionally. It's it's very much like reading a script or a a formula novel where you swap pretty much channel change between groups of people all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, changing it up a bit more in terms of let's spend the whole episode with the uh, the Hobbit stand-in, Sir Halfwitz. 
you yeah. know, that kind of thing. To be fair, they actually do more of that than I'd thought. And there's these weird sort of things about they travel very fast, very far, and mm. uh, and I feel this would not be an issue necessarily in any other show that was fantasy, but it's Tolkien, and he took great pains with his maps and his mm. appendices, and, and this is actually yeah. information that they are allowed to have access to on Lord yeah. of the Rings. So, but again, you know, it's it's not a documentary, and and, I, and again, Wizard, <laughs> so I can get away with that. And problem is, of course, that the Tolkien did actually write a very substantial essay on how to write fantasy mm. and on the tropes of fairy stories. So I think that there is actually room for them, as some of the Tolkien purists might say, to, to actually go back to the source and do a little. And I'm sure they actually have, but and then you decide yeah. well, this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. And It's risky, I guess, because what they got the rights to, as you mentioned, is the appendices, but this story and a lot of this is being written now by, you know, it's not based off a clear source material. Mm. And so, you know, I think that's, Okay, in a lot of ways. As do I. <laughs> but you make it hard on yourself to get it right. I think when you operate in an existing world, you really need to do it well and people can't see the seam, you know. They shouldn't be able to see the stitches of where you're trying to add on this extra thing. From what I've heard that maybe it's not quite pulled off. But- Actually, the funny part is, and, and, I, and I've worked through that fairly quickly, I'm going, yeah, all right, this is the way they've, they've done it. And why is Galadriel wearing that sign on her armour? And the point is it's not her armour. I thought, mm. oh, that's very clever, actually. But, okay, so anyway, go for, go away from all that sort of <laughs> clutter that, that fills your head at times, or at least it does mine. There are other little things as well, like the Numenorean ships, which don't seem anywhere near big enough to carry, like, 500 horses. Very practical sort of things, you know, that do bug me. But, hey, I've watched at least one season of Game of Thrones, and I've seen <laughs> The Witcher and half a dozen other fantasy series and that, and you just sort of go, yeah, all right. This is not, you accept it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, again, a pity because it is Tolkien and he was quite a stickler for that kind of thing. But we move on to the characters in this show, where I think their strengths lie uh, with the, the actors and the actresses, like uh, Morford Clark is mm. Galadriel, and very believable and scary in this younger mm. incarnation. I thought Kate Blanchett could be scary occasionally as Galadriel, <laughs> but whoa, she is so driven by revenge for her poor brother who was mm. killed in the earlier wars. Um, I thought Robert Arameo did a, a pretty decent Elrond too. I could see how that character worked. Um, uh, um, Benjamin Walker playing Gil Gallad, the, the High King of the Elves. He had the necessary dignity and also a bit of real politic running around in his background too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and there's so many different characters in this that, that yes, it did become confusing at time. Uh, uh, Selim Brimborth, the, the difficult name to pronounce, the Elven Smith. I liked him. He was a maker who just wanted to practice his craft. Mm. All right. Now, I also wanted to play another song which is from the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and it's by Fiona Apple, again by Bear McCreary, and it's Where the Shadows Lie. And this is a very strong song about the the rings. So this, again, is from Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Hello, this is Wendy Padbury. I played Zoe Herriot on Doctor Who and Sue Craig on Free Wheelers. You're listening to Zero G on 3 triple RFM. Zero G? Well, I'm quite sure that doesn't add up. 
Where the Shadows Lie, featuring the ever-fascinating, always impressive alto vocals of US-American artiste Fiona Apple, composed by Bear McCreary for the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power soundtrack, screened on Amazon Prime, with a little help from verses by J.R.R. Tolkien. Not the ringing tones of Sir Christopher Lee, but nevertheless a splendidly evocative rendition. Back on Zero G with Rob Jan and Megan McHugh talking about Lotta Rings of Power. As the popular meme says, Lotters are not scared. Where were we? Oh yeah, talking about the characters. Then we had the, the assorted humans, uh, Bronwyn the healer in the Southlands, mm-hmm. a very practical person who could either mm. get you healed or, and put you into hospital at the same time if she wanted to. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, and a whole inflection of, of characters there across the whole thing. And the dwarves, mm. Owen Arthur playing mm. during the fourth, and Sophie Nomvet, the princess, his Durin's wife. She was great too. And I don't care that she didn't have a full beard. <laughs> She's actually seen it under a chin. She's got a neck beard. Oh. But, you know, so that's all right then. Mm-hmm. But they were great. They were, for me, that was the echo of Legolas's and Gimli's friendship in yes. Lord of the Rings, an early sort of proto relationship. It was so touching at times. Like, Durin was genuinely hurt that Elrond didn't come to his wedding. Oh. And Elrond scratching his head, thinking, oh, yeah, because elves live on a completely different scale. <laughs> that's their excuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, couldn't come. Immortal. <laughs> <laughs> and the halfwits were the cutest, you know, since Frodo Baggins with those big eyes of his looking up at Lenny Henry playing one of the halfwit elders and uh, Megan Richards playing Poppy Proudfellow, one of the two key halfwits in there. Markella Kavanagh playing Norrie Brandyfoot, the mm-hmm. adventurous one. So, again, we're seeing little echoes of the, the later hobbits in here and with very similar sort of chemistry going on there. Yeah. And, wow, Daniel Wayman playing the stranger. By the end of the series, we do know what is going on. Let me mm. tell you that they do not leave you uh, wanting at the end of the first season for explanations of, of who is what. Okay. Uh, and this is a big question of the whole first series. Who is Sauron? Who is Alron? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we know from the law that Sauron is a bit of a shapeshifter and can fool people. In fact, did yeah. they do that? Unfortunately, it is all kind of laid out in the Silmarillion. <laughs> so, you know, it's all there in one particular section of it. So if you've read that, then you'll probably not be too surprised by what happens in this. But anyway, they do some very interesting baits and switches, and, and the characters themselves. I think they meld very well together, the ones that have to interact with each other. Mm. I don't know how they go all together in one room. <laughs> we may never find out. Yeah. But, you know, the, the dialogue I thought was meaty enough to carry this. And, yeah, it's not Tolkien's lines as such most of the time. Mm. But nevertheless, I think they managed to step up to it. Do I- you think it was worth the project of them making this? Like, do you think you got enough out of the story and that world and getting this extra bit that that this was a project that was, you know, worthwhile? Ask me that when we're swimming in climate change raised seas and we're thinking if we'd spent that much money, it's a hard ask that, mm, mm. you know, if you were going to do it, 
you had to do it well. Like, as I was saying earlier on in the show, I watched a show called The Inhumans, which was what should have been written very large indeed, done on a lower budget, and you just show mm. it all the way through. You're just thinking, yeah. this is a cheap version. This is not a cheap version of Lord of the Rings no. by any means. I think it more than eclipses The Hobbit as a movie. Okay. Uh, it does serve, I think, as, as a pretty damn decent prequel. Again, it does have some narrative problems and some pacing problems, but I, I felt that, you know, I mean, I'm not that impatient with these things. Mm. Give me eight episodes or so or whatever and and you spread it out a bit. I'm all right with that. It's a mm-hmm. big story I, I with lots of characters in motion. I expect it to take a, a while. I don't expect it to lift off in the first episode. And, you know, if it's if it's action you want, there's plenty of that, and the spectacle is full on. And speaking of echo-tastrophes, the creation of Mordor, oh, my goodness, just unbelievable. But you have to believe it. It's on TV. Lots to enjoy in it, I thought. Yeah. Uh, in the soundtrack, too, especially, we attract just before, and that will be, well, we'll go out with another track from The Lord of the Rings when we get there, from The Rings of Power. You know, I think that there's strengths to it and weaknesses, mm-hmm. and I do think that you're going to be tripping over a few things as you go along on those half-foot big feet. But overall, I was satisfied with it. You know, I mean, there's some things that, that made a little sense to me, like Galadriel deciding to swim back to <laughs> the shore from the middle of the ocean. I thought, well, yeah. this, she's an elf. She can, you know, she's optimistic, that yeah. sort of thing. So, yeah, okay. I wasn't disappointed by where it went to. I do look oh, forward to a second season. Oh, uh, okay. And there are some moments in it that you just think, I want to watch this on the biggest possible screen that I can. Okay, yeah, yeah. The production values are pretty strong. Mm. And they did achieve at least one good. I did not see that coming. It's hard to trick me with some of these things because I watch so much of it. And you can, yeah, okay. you can sense the narrative flow. Yes, yeah. So if it caught you off guard, I think that's a good sign for it. Mm. And you will find that it is kind of scary when it has to be. So it yeah. might not be for the little ones. Yeah, yeah. Unless they actually are half and that sort of thing. So I think we will go over a track from that. And this is by one of the Halfwoods. And so it's a little wandering song. And I just like it. It's kind of cute. It's called This Wandering Day, featuring Megan Richards, who is one of the Hobbits, the Halfwoods, I should say. Oh, oh. Mm. And Bear McCreary is the nice. creator of this from The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of power and that's about it for zero g for today welcome back megan thank you and happy halloween rob mm-hmm. and oh also yeah well go off and watch um werewolf by night you'll enjoy it and also we would like to thank our podcaster ellis savage so off we go wandering with the halffoots G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.